Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The pre-made year, session number 321. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I am thankful that you are joining me Today here on session number 321. It's amazing how far we've come over six years of podcasts, which is phenomenal. I'm glad, I'm thankful that you are taking the time to listen to this podcast today. A great one, a fun one. I am loving Instagram. If you don't follow me on Instagram, I would encourage you to go follow me on Instagram. I am at Medical School HQ. And in my story today, I put out that I was doing a Q&A for the podcast that will go out tomorrow or today as you're listening to this podcast. And I got a ton of questions and we're going to go through all of those questions here on the podcast today. So let's go ahead and dive in with those. So the first question, does shadowing count as clinical experience? If not, what can I do to gain more clinical experience? This is a very common question and a very mis- understood part of the pre-med process is extracurriculars, clinical versus shadowing. Is shadowing clinical? Is clinical shadowing? Yes and no. Right, so shadowing is not clinical experience. In the application itself, you can mark something as shadowing. You can mark something as medical slash clinical experience. So shadowing is not counted as clinical experience. You need separate shadowing and separate clinical experience. Clinical experience is defined as being close enough to smell the patient. Uh, What that smells like, I'm not sure. Uh, So you need to figure that out yourself. Something like patient transport in a hospital, that can go both ways. I've heard from some schools that they don't consider that clinical experience. So even among clinical experiences, there's still a little bit of, of... uh, black and whiteness or grayness, apparently, uh, to pardon the pun as m- for my name, uh, as far as how it's going to be viewed at each medical school. But general rule of thumb, close enough to smell the patient. So you think of things like at real clinical stuff, like phlebotomy, like EMT, like um, uh, being a medical assistant, uh, what else? Uh, paramedic, obviously, as as a branch uh, higher up of, of EMT. 
Um, working as a nurse, amazing clinical experience, obviously. Working as a medic in the Air Force or military, amazing clinical experience. So those are clinical experiences. Being a scribe, definitely clinical experience. Again, that's one of those weird ones that I've heard some schools, they're like, yeah, scribing really isn't clinical experience. I 100% disagree. I think it's amazing clinical experience. Um, but but that would be considered clinical experience. Volunteering for hospice is one of those things that I think is amazing clinical experience that you should check out. Um and it's easy to do, right? Hospice is one of those things that I tell students right away, if, if you need clinical experience immediately, go join hospice. You don't need a certificate, you don't need anything. And usually there are lots of um, patients who unfortunately don't have family members around, don't have loved ones around the, to be with them at the end of their life. And so they need the hospice volunteers to, to do that. So uh, those are some things to get more clinical experience. So continuing on, how many letters of rec can you submit in the application? So each medical school, this is one of the hardest parts of the medical school application. Every medical school requires something different. They want something different. So you have to go through the process. You have to look at all the schools you are applying to and try to figure out what each medical school wants. Do they want three letters of recommendation? Do they want four letters of recommendation? What's the minimum? What's the maximum? What are the required ones? General rule of thumb, two letters of recommendations from a science professor, one letter of recommendation from a non-science professor. Throwing in a letter of recommendation from uh, a physician, and you're typically good to go. I generally don't recommend throwing in more letters of recommendation than what they are requiring, what the medical schools are requiring. Because if you think about the number of applications that each of the schools are going through, they're going to look at the bare minimum of what they require. And so if they require three letters and you send them six, don't allow them the opportunity to pick the three that they are going to look at. They may pick the three worst in your group of six. And you're like, oh, I'm just going to send them all right? I don't care. I'm going to send them all. More is better. But in this case, I would say no, more is not better. I would definitely look at sending the best ones possible that meet their requirements and, and probably no more than that. All right. Another question for a letter of recommendation. What is the committee pre-health most schools talk about wanting letters from? So this is one of those things like if you have to ask, you probably don't have a committee. Uh, so the the pre-health committee is typically the pre-health office at your school, the advising office. Now, not every advising office will write a committee letter. And a committee letter is the group of advisors in that office get together. They typically will interview you. They want to get the uh, parts of your application, your personal statement, extracurriculars, things like that typically. And they'll review it and write you based on other letters of recommendation that go to the committee, they'll write you a committee letter. And I don't like committee letters because they're generally watered down versions of a letter of recommendation. So some schools have them, some schools don't. If your school has it, go ahead and try it. Go ahead and use it. Uh, I, I put an asterisk on that because a lot of times the letter writers at your committee will write a letter and, and submit it in like September. And I'm like, no, thank you. I want my application complete way before then. 
And a lot of times I'll just uh, recommend students just submit the individual letters. If the committee ever gets around to submitting your letter, great, you can add that to the mix, but at least your application is complete before then. Lots of letter of recommendation questions today. How do you ask for a letter of recommendation from professors you haven't kept in touch with? Uh, I would probably recommend you don't ask for a letter of recommendation from a professor you haven't kept in touch with. Those are hard letters to get. Uh, the letter is supposed to be about who you are as a person and uh, how your personality, your traits, your skills, etc., are going to uh, help you be a physician in the future. And my, my general recommendation is if you Google AAMC Letter of Recommendation Writer's Guide or something like that, LOR Writer's Guide, uh, the AAMC has a great PDF all about what the letter writer should be writing about, what, should, what they should be focusing on. And so take that information give it to the letter writer. Uh, but how do you ask for a letter writer or for a letter from somebody you haven't kept in touch with? I would hopefully look for somebody else that you have kept in touch with. If you have to have a letter from somebody you haven't kept in touch with, just reach out, send them an email and say, hey, Dr. Smith, uh, I hope you remember me and I'll just blah, 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 right? Just lay it out there. Uh, let them know that you're applying to medical school. Be specific as to why you were asking them for a letter of recommendation and um, just go from there and see what they say. Uh, but it's probably just general rule of thumb, not going to be a good letter because if you haven't kept in touch with them, then you don't have that relationship to get a very strong letter of recommendation. Question, I have a 3.3 GPA. Do you recommend doing one-year master's that mimics first year of medical school? So here's something that I've had a big kind of change of heart with recently, just hearing feedback from students over and over and over again from medical schools. And the general consensus seems to be that medical schools like your undergraduate GPA more than your master's um, GPA. And so if you have a 3.3 undergraduate GPA, I would work on improving your undergraduate GPA. And that means doing post-bac work at an undergraduate level. Now, the, the master's that mimics the first year of medical school is called a special master's program. In most cases, a lot of times you're doing classes with the medical students. That may be beneficial, uh, especially at the specific medical school that you're doing the SMP at because they're seeing you in the environment that you're going to be in as a first year medical student and seeing how you can handle yourself. Um, I would work really hard doing undergraduate level work to get that positive trend up. And yes, if you do the math, it's not very good because if you have that degree already, then your denominator is so big that it's not going to move the needle much. But that positive trend will work really well. It'll show separately as post-bac GPA, and it will affect your science GPA, undergraduate science GPA, undergraduate overall GPA. So that's what I would recommend. I haven't been recommending masters uh, much anymore, especially for the cost. You can take the classes in undergrad on your own, do it yourself post-bac at a community college, at a four-year university, and it would be much, much cheaper. All right, continuing on, is shadowing a nurse anesthetist who does all the anesthesia valid? Uh, it is shadowing, uh, but I would not use it uh, as your main shadowing for medical school. Uh, you can put it in your application, 
but again, I wouldn't uh, rely on it as shadowing because your goal is to shadow a physician, not a nurse anesthetist. And while they're doing a lot of things similar to what a physician does, they are not a physician. They are not acting as a physician. So be careful with that one. How will being a PA be viewed on my medical school application? I think it's viewed favorably. I've helped a lot of PAs transition into medical school, and uh, it's really all about the story that you are telling. Um, (laughs) And it's, it's why do you want to be a physician? And a lot of students will focus on why I don't want to be a PA, and typically that comes out as negative, like PAs can't do this and they can't do that and blah, 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 blah. I'm tired of getting bossed around by the physicians. I'm tired of being looked at negatively by the physicians. I've heard it all. Uh, and the focus needs to be on why do you want to be a physician? What is it about being a physician that you need that you can't get as a PA? Again, not why not PA, but why physician? Uh, and it's amazing clinical experience, obviously being a PA, and you can talk about all the things that you're doing, all the experience that you had, and just that it's not enough, and you want to to get that MD or DO. All right, so moving on, is clinical experience in a third world country looked worth, worth less uh, than experience in America? So we already talked about that one a little bit. Uh, I don't know if it's worth less than, um, but again, Make sure that you're doing the right things or you're not doing the wrong things while you're there. Do we need to find a job at a hospital or is it enough to shadow and volunteer? You do not have to work in a clinical setting. You do not have to get paid to work in a hospital to do all of that um, stuff to show that you want to be a doctor. Shadowing, clinical experience, volunteering, all of that is great. If you can swing a job working as a scribe that that uh, puts food on the table and a roof over your head, whatever bills you have to pay, great, do that. Uh, being a scribe doesn't typically pay that well, uh, so you may be living at home with mommy and daddy, uh, but it's a great uh, job, a great experience while you're in the middle of your applications or doing whatever you're doing. But you don't have to do that. Last year, I helped a student who was working full-time as a computer programmer. It happened to be for physical therapy software, so it's kind of this weird pseudo-clinical thing. Uh, but the, he was a computer programmer and was working full-time at, as a computer programmer. And he got a little bit of flack for that. Uh, he was asked on the interview trail why he was doing that. If he, if he was trying to prove that he wanted to go to medical school, why was he working as a computer programmer? And he has a wife and two kids and that was paying the bills. And so as long as you have a reason why, if you get challenged, then there's nothing to worry about there. What's the best advice you could give to an undergrad freshman? The best advice that I can give to an undergrad freshman is slow down, relax, calm down. You don't have to do it all right now. Your main focus should be learning how to be a college student, get good grades, meet some friends, have fun, but more, most importantly, get good grades. Uh, the, the rest of the stuff, all of the volunteering and clinical experience and shadowing, all of that can come later once you figure out how to be a college student. Which practice tests besides AMC are proven most helpful for the MCAT? So the, the feedback that I get from students is that next step test preps, full-length tests, 
are the second best full-length exams, right? First best is the AAMC because they write to the test. Second best is Next Step Test Prep. They sell packages from uh, four, six, or 10 full-length exams, and you can get 10% off using the promo code MSHQ. Uh, it saves you 10%. It gives me a little bit of beer money. Uh, I do get a commission, so the, the little bit of beer money. I get a commission from most of the test prep companies, and so um, I could recommend most of them and get a commission, but I recommend Next Step because you guys tell me that Next Step is the best out there. I have an amazing relationship with them. Uh, I trust them. I obviously do the MCAT podcast with them. If you don't listen to that one, I highly recommend you do. When and where should your letters of recommendations be sent? So there are a couple different ways to handle letters of recommendations. You can send them directly to the application services, but you'd have to wait until they open up for the year that you are applying. And I typically don't recommend that because then you're waiting basically to the last minute to to time it perfectly to say, okay, Professor Smith, now you can send in the application to the application service. And if you are applying to both AMCAS and ACOMIS and TMDSAS, so all three application services, then that professor has to send to all three application services. So I recommend sending to a letter of recommendation service like Interfolio. Um, and these things change, and I think something changed with the Interfolio recently with uh, who who's accepting them or with the application service and, and who's accepting Interfolio. So always go and check Interfolio, make sure that they're still working with all the application services. But typically, I recommend Interfolio. Uh, I think it's free to, they changed that recently too. It's like 50 bucks a year maybe. Um, and then you submit all your letters to them. The letter writers submit the letters to them. And then they disperse the letters of recommendation out to the different um, application services. And then you don't have to time it right. They they can send them in January and then you submit your application in May or June and the letters get out as they need to be. And they do some quality checking as well. We have a question. Explain about MD-PhD. So here's one of the biggest pieces of confusing information for students. I, ha I had this conversation with a student the other day who was applying MD-PhD, hadn't gotten any interviews, had decent stats, but had very, very little research and was applying MD-PhD. And I said, why are you applying MD-PhD? He's like, well, I really like research. I'm like, well, you haven't proven that you like research. And MD-PhD is all about research. And the successful applicants that I've helped uh, with their essays and getting into MD-PhD schools, they're at like 2,000 plus hours of research as an undergrad. They've proven that they want to do research and they're typically they're honing in on a specific thing that they want to research. And so you don't have to be an MD-PhD to do research as a physician. It's one of the biggest issues biggest uh, myths that's around being a physician and doing research. You can go to medical school, MD or DO, and do research. You don't have to have the PhD. MD-PhDs are typically very academic, very research-driven, with very little clinical experience. And so when I talk to a student who's saying, I want to apply MD-PhD, I, I want to have an amazing clinical practice and, and use research, uh, translational research to help my clinical practice, then I tell them, go get your MD or DO 
and just do research on the side. You don't have to have that PhD. So it's a, a little bit extra with the application with an MD, um, MD-PhD essay with a research essay, um, but that's about it. Would being promoted to manager at a restaurant count as leadership if I include it in the application? Of course, it's definitely leadership. Great job. I worked all throughout college that were mostly restaurant related. Should I include this in my app? Yes. Yeah, so one of the biggest things that students don't do is they they think that the application needs to be 100% focused on medicine, on healthcare. And that isn't the case. The application should paint a picture about who you are as a person. Guess what? On the AMCAS application, when you click the category for extracurricular, it has a drop down there. And guess what What is there? You have non-clinical and non-medical related activities. And you also have hobbies listed there. So 100%, you can put all these other things and it paints a picture about who you are as a person outside of, yes, I like science and I want to help people. Obviously, that, that is hopefully a given. And so doing all the restaurant stuff, you're able to tell a story about leadership. You're able to tell a story about personal interaction potentially. Um, and hopefully you you don't tell a story about stereotypical restaurant behavior of, of staying up until two or three o'clock in the morning at closing and drinking and, and doing all kinds of fun extracurriculars after that. But that's uh, that's just what the movies show. What do you do if you get an offer from a DO school but deposit is too much money? So here's uh, something, uh, a Comus AOA, if you are watching this, um, shame on you for not regulating the deposit amounts from medical schools. It is, uh, uh, it's disgusting how much some of these DO schools are charging for non-refundable deposits to students. All you're doing is increasing this divide of students who can afford it and students who can't afford it. And if a student gets an acceptance and all of a sudden is faced with a $2,000 deposit that they don't have, what are they supposed to do? So what I would do is I would reach out to the school and say, I want to come. Uh, you guys are charging way too much money. And can I give you my firstborn? Um, so you you just need to to hopefully work with them and see what they can do. Um, but it's one of those things that the MD, AMC uh, regulates that. That's changed a little bit with the new traffic rules this year. Um, I, I believe, I haven't looked into it fully, but I believe the medical schools, the MD medical schools, um, historically it's been $100 deposit. That's set by the AAMC. The AOA needs to do the same thing for DO schools. Uh, but with the AMCAS application and MD schools, they can now charge fees or something or other on top of, I believe, the deposit. Uh, don't, don't take my word on that. Just Google the new traffic rules and, and see what uh, they have going on. Can you distinguish what is it that makes an extracurricular provide quality clinical experience? Um, so quality clinical experience is, is dependent on what you determine to be quality, quality clinical experience. Now, if you're asking the question quality in terms of, of will medical schools like it, it depends on how you pitch it. Uh, what are you explaining as what you're doing? That's the biggest thing. If you're 
if you have amazing clinical experience as a medical assistant, let's let's talk about being a medical assistant. You have this amazing experience as a medical assistant. But in your description, you write the most basic job description ever for a medical assistant. And you say, as a medical assistant, I uh, showed up at the clinic when they opened and I made sure all the surfaces were cleaned and uh, I called back patients, took their blood pressures and brought them back to their room. It's not a very good description. Job descriptions are horrible extracurricular descriptions. But if you told a story about one of the patients that you saw regularly and you saw the impact that that patient coming to the physician on a regular basis had on his or her life, how you were able to impact that patient's life with whatever you were doing, that makes for a quality clinical experience because you're telling me how quality it was. So that's really the big difference between somebody who does well and somebody who does poorly with their extracurriculars. Does it matter for medical schools how many years it took you to get your bachelor's degree? Nope, for the most part, you're fine. Uh, it depends. Are you taking like one class a year? They may question your ability to handle a, for a full course load. But if you're taking an extra year, maybe you had to withdraw for a semester or two because of, of whatever reason, don't worry about that. Does it look bad to have three physician letters from the same specialty? Uh, you don't need three physician letters. We talked about letters of recommendations earlier. Uh, make sure you're getting the required letters that the school wants. Above and beyond that, if you have a physician letter, great. So three physician letters is just a complete waste of time for everybody. Do you have to take class with the science professors who write your letters, and can you or can you work for them? You don't have to take class with the people who are writing your letters of recommendations. The letters of recommendations aren't going to be, hey, Johnny took my class and got an A, therefore I recommend him to be a physician. If you've worked for that professor, you're going to have a much stronger relationship with him or her, and they are going to be able to write you a much stronger letter of recommendation because they know who you are, they know uh, what your skills are, your traits are, etc., and can better comment on your um likelihood of being a good physician. Advice if you have almost no ECs because you started the process late but are still applying next year. Yeah, I have excellent advice. Don't apply next year. What's the rush? There's no rush. I had a, a back and forth with a student recently who uh, hasn't taken the MCAT yet and is still going to apply for last cycle, right? The cycle that started May and June of 2018, she hasn't taken the MCAT yet. She's going to take it later in January. And she's going to apply March 15th. She's going to apply March 15th, which is the deadline for DO schools. The deadline, and I don't recommend applying it to deadline, to uh, she's going to apply then. And she wouldn't take no for an answer. She's like, can you help me? <laughs> no, I'm not going to help you. You're setting yourself up for failure. Um, and that's what you're doing. If you're, if you're wanting to apply with no ECs or rushed ECs, take a year off. It's not going to kill you. It's just a year. I know being young, you're like, ah, oh, my life is, is, is moving too fast. But trust me, you got time. Take a year off, get some quality extracurriculars under your belt, and then apply. Um, do science letters have to come from hard science only? 
Uh, I would probably say yes on that. Um, I, I don't know what, what the soft science, maybe psychology. Eh, I, I think if it's a science class considered for the AMCAS application, I would probably consider it uh, a science letter of recommendation. If you have no updates to submit during the application cycle, will it hurt me? Um, it will hurt you if you are lacking something in your application and you're not fixing that to send an update letter. So if you are lacking clinical experience, I'll give you an example of a student who actually just got her first acceptance today. She emailed me and uh, she was one, she applied, she was lacking some clinical experience based on where she's located and not having a car. Um, and she applied knowing that she needed to continue to get some more clinical experience and shadowing. She sent an update letter to schools saying, hey, I got more of this. I know that this may be hurting my application. Here's an update to show you that I understand this. I'm aware of this and, and I've, I've been working on it. So if you are not, if you're missing something in your application and you're not fixing it, and you're not saying an update letter to show that you're fixing it, then yeah, it can hurt you. If your application is great, then you don't need to send an update letter, if that makes sense. When, if ever, should money, should cost of attendance stop mattering if deciding between acceptances? So the, the cost of um, attendance, so if you're looking at the school budget, how much is tuition gonna cost, living expenses, all of this stuff, um, I think it comes in at the very end. Uh, if one school is twice as expensive as the other, I had this question from a student recently. If She said, um, is it going to matter? I, I got a great acceptance to, to uh, my state school and it's half as much as, as where I am now because uh, I'm considered out of state and they're not gonna let me have in-state for the whole time or whatever it was. It's gonna be twice as much. I said, Honestly, go to the cheaper school. If you're looking at a difference of like $10,000 or $20,000, then sure, maybe it's it's less of an issue over time. If you actually plug that into a loan repayment calculator, it's like, oh, it's an extra $10 a month or, or whatever it is. Um, and hopefully you're getting potentially some financial aid and then you can, if one school is offering you some financial aid and the other one isn't, you can potentially go back and forth with the schools to see who can offer you the best. I took AP Psych in high school. Should I fit it fit in an online course or do a self-study for MCAT? Um, so it depends on if the schools you are applying to are requiring it as a prereq. If it is a prereq for the schools that you're applying to, I wouldn't recommend taking it online uh, because schools don't like their prereqs done online for the most part. Um, so if you are looking at the school requirements and it's not a requirement, then sure, take a, an online course or you can self-study it if you don't have to self-study any other uh, big courses for the MCAT. Is it okay if it does take a little longer but carrying heavy course load with upward trends? Of course it is okay. How does admissions look at applicants who take longer than four years to earn their degree? So a common trend today, we talked about that one a bunch. When do we find out who won the contest? So with the essay contest, we're working through those essays. It's our first time doing it. If you're new to um, 
to medical school headquarters world, we did our first uh, scholarship essay contest that ended on January 31st. We had well over 100, uh, close to 150, I think, more essays uh, for those submissions. We were going to do a quarterly essay contest, uh, but with the amount of entries that we got, we're like, yeah, let's do this every six months. And so we we doubled the prize money, which most people don't know that we did that yet, uh, but we doubled the prize money and we did it every six months instead of every quarter. First place is $4,000, uh, second is 2000 and third is... Is third 2000? No, 4000, 3000. I don't know what it is anymore. No, 1500. And then something like that. 500. Yeah, that's what it is. 4000, 1500, 500. That's what it is. Um, go to premedscholarship.com to learn more about that. Will community college classes taken after graduation get added to undergraduate GPA? Yes, they will. They'll get added uh, separately as post back classes. Uh, but it will be counted towards your undergraduate GPA. 3.1 GPA, but good MCAT, apply to master's or bridge program or try to apply one cycle. I listen to the podcast. So I would, if you have a 3.1, it depends on what that looks like, right? A 3.1 as a steady 3.1 across all the years is different than 4040420, whatever that math works out to, uh, is different than 20304040 right the upward trend is much different it tells a different story about who you are about what your struggles are um so there's there's a lot that goes into answering that question the 3.1 can be uh, many different things uh i mentioned earlier that i am not high on masters programs anymore i'm m- more sold on just doing post back work uh, at an undergraduate level to improve your GPA because medical schools seem to worry more about your undergraduate GPA versus the master's GPA. Fortunately, I'm debt-free. Great for my college career. Where can I get info for medical school tuition? Uh, you just go to the medical school's websites themselves. They'll have all of their information on there. I'm one quarter Hispanic. Is that significant enough to put on my application? Does it help? Uh, that's up to you. Um, I, I'm not sure what the laws say. I, I, I'm pretty sure there's rules and regulations around. I mean, if Elizabeth Warren claims that she's uh, of Native American ancestry and it's, she's like one five hundredth, uh, then one quarter probably you're you're good. Um, but just make sure you're following the rules. Um, does the, if the question is does being Hispanic help? Definitely, um, Hispanic is is definitely an underserved, um, uh, underrepresented minority in medicine. Is it okay if I did a lot of research and was published twice a year and uh, twice a year and half ago, but haven't done much um, research since, I'm assuming is what that asks. Uh, if you've done research and you've stopped, that's great. You don't have to worry about consistency with research unless you are trying to apply to MD-PhD. Consistency with um, with volunteering and clinical experience and shadowing is much more important than consistency with research. 2.6 cumulative, 3.4 science, 514 MCAT. Will I get accepted to a U.S. school maxed out units? So a 2.6 cumulative depends on the medical school. Uh, some medical schools may screen that out. Some medical schools may, may screen out cumulative. They may screen out science. 
uh, if they screen out science only and they go, oh, look, 3.4, that's that's great. Uh, but a 2.6 cumulative will probably close a lot of doors for you. Will you get accepted to a U.S. school? There's probably a chance. Again, it's it's impossible to answer these questions with just a GPA because I don't know what that GPA looks like. Again, is it a straight line? Is it a downward trend? Is it an upward trend? I don't know. Um, so there's a lot more that goes into it. Uh, I would say you apply and, and see what the medical schools tell you. That is probably what I would tell you to do. I'm a single mom at Drexel with a great GPA, a junior. Uh, will they understand that my ECs aren't amazing? Yes, they will. I've had this discussion specifically with uh, with one ADCOM member that that loves non-traditional students. And the answer was like, yeah, like we understand if you're in a situation as a non-traditional student, as, as a parent, as uh, as somebody who has to work to put food on the table, to put a roof over your head, we understand that your time commitments aren't the same as a traditional student who maybe doesn't have to do those things. So those are great. What is the best way to find shadowing opportunities? You just have to go out to um, the hospital, to private clinics, to physicians, to your own physicians, and ask, 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 ask. Just keep asking and you'll hopefully get some yeses. Um, hopefully, uh, I have a project coming at some point um, that will help with this, um, but nothing guaranteed at this point. Does transferring multiple times make an impact on medical school decisions? It depends on why you transferred, as, as long as you have a good reason why, if it comes up. At what point should a student begin studying for the MCAT? The majority of students study three to four months. Uh, upwards of six months for the MCAT, and you take it in April or May um, is what I recommend of the year that you are applying. Is a 3.5 cumulative GPA competitive enough to get my food in the door? I don't know about your food, but you can get your foot in the door. Uh, yes, a 3.5 cumulative is um, decent. How can I make the list of schools? Uh, how do you make a school list? I recommend not looking at the MSAR. Most students go straight to the MSAR and they look at that median GPA, that median MCAT. And they forget as they're looking at it that it's a median number. And they think, oh, that's the average. I shouldn't apply. It's a median. Half the class is below it. Half the class is above it. Don't look at MCAT and GPA when looking at schools to apply to. Pick schools that you want to go to. Pick locations that you want to be in. Pick based on weather, location, class size, curriculum, uh, uh, locations to residency programs potentially that you may be interested in. At the very end, then you can possibly maybe look at the MSAR in those uh, median ranges. And I would look specifically at the 10th percentile of the GPAs. Uh, in the range on the MSAR is um, the the 10th percentile to 90th percentile and 25th to 75th percentile and then the median. Look at that 10th percentile. If you are near that 10th percentile at or above it, apply. If you're pretty far below it, then then maybe don't apply. All right, so there you have it. Tons of questions from that Instagram live. Great questions, a lot of repetitive stuff. If you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know that most of those questions I've answered here before. So a lot of people who don't listen to the podcast, it's pretty obvious, but that's okay. There's always new students coming, joining this fun pre-med world. 
and I'm here to give them the answers that they need. So go share this with an advisor, go share this with a classmate, go help somebody understand the pre-med process better by sharing this podcast and all of the podcasts that we do at MedEd Media with them. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.